I had been an engineer, and I had designed military electronics, and somehow thought that at one point humanity could engineer their way out of anything. And now I said, well, with all that knowledge about designing, can I design a lifestyle that would work within nature's limits? So when I started asking that question right around 1989, for me, my engineering life became much more exciting. Good morning, and welcome to Living Hero. I'm your host and producer, Jari Chevalier. Today's show brings you a conversation with a true luminary and maverick, Jim Merkel. Jim is the author of Radical Simplicity, Small Footprints on a Finite Earth, which offers a path to a deeply sustainable way of living that's respectful of all life. Jim founded the Global Living Project, and he teaches at Unity College. I am so pleased to bring you Jim Merkel. The two growing uh, curves on planet Earth, to me, that are troubling is an exponentially growing population and then an exponentially growing desire for more stuff, <laughs> consumerism. Yeah. And the two actually multiply to give us our impact. You know, human impact is basically equal to how many people there are times each cons- the consumption level of each all added up. So the fact that they're both growing and that in some place of the world people are in abject, deep, deep poverty, like a billion people without enough food to have a basically healthy body, you know, 10 million children dying a year, preventable causes, and then you have some that are just completely too much stuff and not even happy with it. And so it's it seems like such an obvious thing to work on, but it's not what we're working on. I mean, as the human family... Um, addressing how do we get there? How do we get to a sustainable future? Something that we could say to our kids or they could have and actually see. I teach at a university and you know, the college kids can't see a future that's going to be anything but pretty bleak ecologically and socially and, you know, how humans get along together societally. So, you know, my basic take uh, when I work on radical simplicity still is that how do we address, you know, getting our populations lower? having smaller families, and how do we address having sharing the consumption of the planet radically different? So all those in poverty come out of poverty as quick as possible, and all those who have too much begin to share it a little bit and take less, a smaller share. But I know it can't happen through regulation. I just don't see that ever happening. Europe does a lot better by regulating it, like taxing the heck out of it. Yeah. You know, Jim, I just want to jump in and say that in my own personal activism, one thing that I really am up against is that people don't really want to hear it. This is really challenging for me because I feel a sense of passion and urgency and responsibility. I feel that once we see certain things, it's important that we vocalize them. And yet a lot of people just do not want to touch upon these topics. Well, yeah, they are, in a way, our sacred cows, you know. He or she who dies with the most toys wins, and um, be fruitful and multiply, and then the the, the belief 
somehow, or I don't know if it's a belief, but just this, something we'll repeat is like, oh, well, we'll find an answer. Technology will save us. And, you know, so our society in general holds on to those pretty tight. And if you get in certain circles, I know in the playing field area, I lived in Vermont for maybe seven or eight years, and now I'm in Maine. And, you know, you can find a lot of people in our community, in the communities that I've been living in who really get it. You know, they get it at a deep level. Like, you know, I'll travel, you know, the coast quite the country a bit even. You know, speaking at universities is a lot of my work. And I'll be at a, you know, a department head's house, and they're washing their plastic bags, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and they're like, you know, it's a littlest thing, but they know that we have, you know, we can't just keep doing what we're doing. And they, they're ready. A lot of people are ready to make the deep changes, and others, they're, they're laggards. You know, there's, like, people out there in front and people with a new, who get it, you know, that we humans can't continue this way if we want to have any kind of future for the earth and other species and humanity itself is unraveling. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I said this to you in our our first interview that I I really feel that while there is a population problem, I I do wish there were more people like you and your beautiful and wise partner, Susan Cutting, on the planet doing the kind of work and also living the way that you live. And since you're your personal life was quite well documented in your DVD and your book, but you've entered a new phase of life since those productions by um, partnering up with Susan and having an adorable little boy named Walden. So I would love it if you could share now what you've been doing. Talk about the home birth in that indoor pool of water and uh, fatherhood and what you're building there with Susan and Walton. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, it took me to be 52 to be a dad. And, and I just, um, you know, I, I was reflecting and I thought, well, in my twenties, it would have been a disaster because I was so like extended adolescence, like me centered. Mm. <laughs> and then I couldn't have been a decent parent. And in my 20s, then when I turned 30, in my 30s, I became an activist. And I lived and breathed like every cause you could imagine, like hundreds and hundreds of public hearings, direct action, getting arrested, everything you could imagine, getting onto boards of directors and starting organizations. And, and then in my 40s, you know, I got clear inside, like I didn't need to be a parent. You know, my genetics aren't really that great. <laughs> you know, I don't need to see that little Jimmy walking around. Mm-hmm. No desire for that. You know, I didn't have a need. And I got peace around, like, not being a parent. And then I met Susan. <laughs> and, um, you know, we met. She, she was clear she wanted to be a parent. And I was, you know, at the time, like, late 40s. And I was like, well, you know, I don't need to be a parent. But, you know, I'm not close to the idea. I just need to really consider it. So after like four years, I was so really open to it. And um, it's been super wonderful, you know, to be a, a parent this age in life, because sometimes he's just, he's three now, and he's just so wonderful. And, you know, when he does stuff that, you know, you really could see where you could be, get, become angry you know, mm-hmm. inside. And I, I find my more common response is to really laugh inside and try to, like, hold the laughter off my face so it doesn't encourage him, you know. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, it's kind of fun delaying um, 
gratification of parenthood. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then it was funny. We were hanging out with relatives, so, um, and his I was introducing him to his cousins, and I was thinking there was aunts and uncles, and they're thir- in their tw- late twenties and thirties. Mm-hmm. These are my brothers and sisters' kids. So I just realized, like. That was 25 to 30 years of an American consumer not on the planet, you know, <laughs> by delaying fertility. And then I started real, really looking back, like, I, I, you know, having a one-child family is really great for the planet, but then having a one-child family that you start instead of in your 20s, maybe your 30s or 40s, even in my case 50s, you kind of, like, slow down the population growth radically on planet Earth, you know? Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Now, j- yeah. if we could just go back, because, um, you know, in, in the overall scope of this Living Hero program, the way children are conceived and carried and birthed and taught uh, in the home and in the educational system is very much a part of uh, the presentation, how important that is, and all the changes that can be made in that process of the way that the human nature is shaped through these various aspects. Would you talk about the decisions that you and Susan have made, uh, your conscious parenting, including the way Walden was uh, carried and birthed? Well, Susan and I, uh, we were pretty much leaning toward a home birth from the beginning and went to see midwives and she did go to the Hitchcock Medical Center because she wanted to have a doctor's opinion and they said well at your age we're going to automatically induce you at 39 weeks of you know of pregnancy and and all this stuff right even though the woman the doctor had like a a bit of a hippie dress on you know <laughs> and I'm just sitting there in my chair biting my tongue I'm like this is giving me a stomach ache you know to listen to this woman because we've already been to a midwife who says at 43, it's no problem. You know, she's just like smiling at her and saying, you are awesome, you're strong, you're healthy, you know how to birth, you know, it's all in you, and just encouraging her, encouraging her, encouraging her. Go to the hospital, and they're just like, full discouragement. You better get all these tests because, they, you know, the risks of all these things are really high. And then we looked at the data, and they are really high, you know. And so, but we did decipher a few of the tests you know, to make sure the child wasn't really, you know, wouldn't have to be born with serious birth defects. Mm-hmm. But then we didn't go back anymore to the doctors, you know. She walked out of there saying, I'm not going back to them, you know. And um, we found beautiful midwives in Maine, and they are so amazing. And we had such care. You wouldn't even imagine it, you know. Um, like an hour and a half together with these women once a week, and they would all two or three of them sit with us and just ask us about our family life, talk for like... 45 minutes just about life and what this family, what we're, you know, they wanted to hear the context of this child, you know, in the womb even, you know, like, how is the energetic of your home, you know, your family? And both of us decided to back away from work for the almost the whole pregnancy. We were more or less together supporting each other and just Mm -hmm. um, trying to be light and energetic and healthy and happy and, you know, sending him all the good vibrations for a healthy coming. Yeah, I was going to say it sets up a kind of resonance even with the midwife, the way that was done, relational. Right. It's just amazing. And so, you know, by the time, you know, it was a long labor, like 80 hours, you know, most women would, you know, the doctors in our hospital had a 50% cesarean rate at the time, one of the doctors actually, and our midwife had a 3% cesarean rate. <laughs> you know, like, these are the, you know, we're in the same area, 
you know, what is going on here? And so, you know, she labored 80 hours and two full nights, you know, and like, they were just so amazing. And, you know, I had to rub her back during every single contraction in just the exact way or else I get yelled at. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> we were in and out of the pool, but he was born in the pool. How did you keep that pool water warm? I'm just wondering how that works. Well, there's a little heater that goes in there, kind of like a fish tank, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> Get fish in a little boy. So it's just like a little heater that hangs over the edge and keeps it really nice and toasty warm and mm-hmm. set it up right in our house. And um, and we had a winter rental that we didn't pay much money for, really, but it was right on the water on the Penobscot Bay. And um, so we had this beautiful time. Susan didn't remember, but I was watching the hiders come in and the seals popping their heads up, singing to check us out. What was your experience as this tremendous life change took place for you? Right. Well, I just cried these really deep tears of joy, you know, and it was just so powerful. Um, you know, the, the bond I felt like I caught, you know, I caught him in the water mm-hmm. and we each held each other, held him and held each other. And he was right there in the water with us floating. And it was really calm, you know, that. Nothing was rushed, you know, everything was just like almost in slow motion. You know, and just peaceful and it was no like, nothing like panicky or anything. It was just calm and beautiful and then he came in and both Susan and I were just like, we were exhausted but we were just like exhilarated beyond belief and you know, the bond, I think, is pretty powerful that happened in that moment. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, you could bond to any child. If you have a, you know, adopted child, you could bond as intensely as you can to your own. And to be a father late in life, it just felt like a really wonderful time, you know, very just precious time. The parental love has its own quality to it, and if you haven't known it, you just don't know that particular quality of love. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it is quite amazing. There is such a selfless love, and then you can see that the, the, the being that's come, that you're, you're there with now, this new, amazing, independent person who really needs you intensely for yeah. quite a few years. You know, they just really depend on you. You know, my mom had a daycare center, and so I was around tons of kids as a young boy because we lived at the family business. She had over 2,000 kids come through over, like, a 15-year period. And I got to know a lot of those young kids as a young boy working in the family business. And, you know, you can see how, like, some parents would treat their children. And, you you know, just like you'll see it in the supermarkets at times, just, like, yelling at them or hitting them or really a lot of, like, negative expressions or body energy that's really negative and just get on your clothes we're going you know a demand you know commanding them and you would never talk to your friend like that you know your best friend right i i did you know, witness it so much in new york city and sometimes i would actually say or do something to try to interrupt that energy that seemed to be escalating and where the child was crying and suffering and the parent was incredibly frustrated and angry, I would try to somehow um, break the circuit, you know, just do something. Right. You know, but but this is going on all around us and it's it's painful to witness. No, it is painful to witness and to see. And, 
know, kids have their own growing pains, and sometimes they don't want to hear no, and they'll cry really intensely if you if you give them a really firm like this is not you know this is not okay you know or we're not doing that we're doing this you know yeah and they set up their will really strong at times and you, you know you can see you know as a parent like wow you do everything with you what you think is right and all of a sudden you've got a quite a demanding little kid on your hands and he's three and that's what kids are demanding at three but you know it's it's such a challenge you know it does you shake up everything you think you know and you never know really what the right answer is. Yeah. You know, that's why I think it depends so much on on the sensitivity and maturity of the parents when they enter this because it is extremely challenging and it pushes people's yeah. buttons and all you can fall back on is the state that your being is in because you're kind of on automatic in some of those moments. You have to have developed the the, yeah. the patience and and a consciousness that enables you to make choices when your buttons are pushed. Right, the energetics that you hold are probably, and the way you, even we treat each other is probably more important than almost anything we can do or say. Right, yeah. just how we are, how we are being, and you know that we do like a, a prayer, a, a silence before every meal, and we sing a little song together, for example, with Walden, and we've done it since day one. You know, and mm-hmm. you can be, you know. And and then we, we we take three quiet breaths, you know, slow breaths at every meal. And so there would be times when he just says, no, I'm not going to do it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a few times I try to coerce him and talk him into it. So then I just stopped that. I just wouldn't do it. But I would just, like, hold my hands out and go silent and then internally just go as peaceful as I possibly can, you know, have zero attachment that he enjoins me with this, you know. Yes. But I'm just silent, and I'm holding my hands out where he can reach them and grab them if he wants to complete the circuit. I just sit there for, like, two minutes, and within, like, 30 seconds, he joins my hands, and he goes completely silent, and he just breathes in and out, and we called the circuit for, like, two and a half, three minutes. You know, he was, like, two years old. <laughs> yeah, that's, I love that you shared that that particular story. That's beautiful, Jim. And Susan, I have to include Susan. The, yeah. the circuit that you create is a beautiful it's thing. I, w- I want to ask you, you've moved to Belfast, Maine. Would you talk about what you're building there, uh, whether you're going to be putting in gardens, permaculture, anything about the vision of how you're going to be living going forward and why you chose that particular community? Well, Susan and I looked around at about four or five communities, and we spent like a month or two in each one. And then Belfast felt like, wow, this is a really good one for us. And we have family in the area, which was a big reason. And it's a, quite an alternative town. And I had had some friendships here who were really, really warm. And there was a huge midwifery community and homeschooling uh, community in this area. And some pretty in- interesting sustainability things happening that we could plug into. And then we looked for two years and rented and we became executive directors of the uh, New Forest Institute for a year and had a year residence there. And during that time, we were still looking for the right land to homestead. We finally found a piece, about 40 acres, that's only two miles from Belfast. So we wanted, one of our criteria was to be in biking distance of a town so that we wouldn't have to be in the car all the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we could possibly, you know, so we have a bike trailer for Walden that he can go in, and, and the three of us can bike into town. There's a nice pedestrian bridge, and we're on quiet roads where if we 
you know, go out on the bikes, you don't feel like you're going to get splattered. You know, um, that was conscious. So we passed by a piece of land, and they have been way better for the gardening and farming just to not be on a busy road and um, where you just wouldn't want a bicycle because it would just feel like you're taking your life in your hands or you wouldn't just say, oh, go get on your bike and go visit your friends, you know, because <laughs> you wouldn't trust the, the drivers on the road. So we did find this place, and it's pretty amazing. And we're right now I bought a sawmill for my neighbor, and I'm milling the wood. Uh, so, and the house is built now um, as far as enclosed. The side, you know, the outside is more or less complete, and we have all the inside to do now. But almost all the wood I milled here on the land, all the trees to make the clearing of oak trees and white pines and milled them into the construction wood and we're building a super insulated house mm-hmm. it's got about a foot thick wall <laughs> uh, using this what they call a modified larsen truss which creates a huge cavity of the wall with an inner wall and an outer wall so then you can we'll fill it with dense packed cellulose which is supposedly one of the lower footprint um, insulations much lower than say spray foam or fiberglass and then well, less toxic like it doesn't have Supposedly, anyway, the flame retardants that can be very toxic to live inside of a house that's with materials that are completely hazardous to human life, especially with a young boy. We didn't want to pickle him inside a house airtight and uh, very energy efficient, and then you have a lot of toxic uh, outgassing happening. So we've been, you know, quite conscientious of that. And um, I'm at the point right now where I'm starting to move inside and get things going on the, in, you know, putting the interior walls in. And um, we, some of the things that we've done were, you know, just like a super insulated slab that's got, you know, six inches of insulation under it. So the house will probably be close to passive, almost needing very, very little heat. But we will heat with a wood stove and cook on a wood stove in the house. Right now we have a hand pump. And we chop our own wood and carry water. So for us, not a metaphor, you know. And like Eckhart Tolle, the uh, says uh, chop wood, carry water, and of course, it's an ancient, I think, Buddhist saying or whatever. But yeah. for us, it's not a metaphor. <laughs> it's really part of every day life. We're at the well pump and um, carrying water for the yurt to live in the yurt while we're building the house. But we will have running water once the house is is um, put together, and we'll have off the grid solar power with no connection to the grid and um, we do already have a second year garden here on the land and, and about 20 fruit trees planted and berries planted and asparagus bed <laughs> so we're a big root cellar we built as part of the house so that you exit the kitchen right into a nice root cellar that's banked into the hill um, so to store potatoes and beets and carrots and cabbages all that great stuff that Vermonters and Mainers and love to eat. <laughs> and squashes. Yeah. Squashes. Oh, yeah. gosh. It sounds so wonderful. And it sounds like because of your knowledge about sustainability and the full scope of it, you were really set up to kind of think of everything in, in looking for the land and in positioning the house and in choosing materials so it really helps to have that that interest and and to take the time to self educate because these are not things that come to us in our public education. 
I wish everyone knew these things by the time they graduated high school, how to how to properly right. build a house that, <laughs> that is sustainable into the future. I wanted to bring up another topic. This is kind of a, an abrupt change of subject, but I've just noticed how the word complexity keeps showing up in a lot of different disciplines. Uh, it seems like complexity theory and emergent systems and self-regulating systems, but this word complexity comes up. It's almost like um, the way the word appropriate used to be like in every other sentence. Um, now we've got complexity as if if something or someone's argument or whatever is complex, it's a really good thing. And since you and I embrace the value of simplicity, uh, and since you do have a background in engineering and I know you read widely, I just wanted to get your take on this whole complexity, simplicity conversation and how things might be nested or how things relate. Yeah, well, it's interesting. It feels like a paradox and a beautiful one in a sense, you know, that how simple it is in a way to be a peaceful human being. Mm-hmm. You know, if you just return to your breath and become present in the moment, and, you know, I'm the person who's always in my head with like a thousand thoughts, and, but if I take that 15 minutes a day to meditate even, the times in my day when I would start to feel anxiety or or you know, whatever, will just relax. And so there's a piece that I understand of simplicity that's amazing. Like, people say simple life is hard, it's complex, and I'm like, no, it isn't. It can be so easy. It's just like, use less, take less, and work less, and um, enjoy more, and just slow down. You know, what's hard about slowing down? You know, what's com- you know what's challenging about just purchasing less stuff, you know, or it's kind of hard in a way to buy stuff because you got to go out and work to get it. That's hard, you know, hard work. But then the complexity thing is like, wow, ecosystems are complex. Like a human being is quite complex. Like what's going on in their head? You know, you can know someone for 20 years and as simple as it might be, you don't know them. You know, and how the climate works is completely complex. How ecosystems function or, you know, we've identified like one point five million species and there's an estimate of like 30 million species out there (laughs) and so we've given them a name we don't even know the purpose they serve in the ecosystem and you know we'll just go out and clear cut the forest and might extinct like five species just to like photocopy uh you know a bunch of pamphlets you know (laughs) so there's this paradox i think of complex systems and understanding that it's to make social change sometimes it's not often feeling that easy because like politics are completely complex and the emotional content of a leader who's making decisions it's really hard to understand why how they're going to make a certain decision and often it's based on like being lobbied to death for you know by some really wealthy companies who who are giving them a lot of donations or expecting certain favors and they're nested with all this historic abuse of power. So, you know, for an activist or person who wants to get involved and try to understand how can I steer the course of humanity at this point, it doesn't feel that obvious. You know, what are you going to do? Are you going to get on a bus and ride to Washington and stand on the streets with several hundred thousand people, hopefully, to fight this XL pipeline? <laughs> or, you know, stand on the corner every single Sunday to say, let's stop the war. 
it doesn't feel like it's enough, but it feels like if I don't do anything, I'm sitting in my house in my cabin in the hills of Vermont while we're sending drones and, and killing innocent people. You know, how do you get involved in politics when a lot of us maybe don't want to? Mm-hmm. We'd rather just live our lives and be homesteaders and engage in our art and music and gardens and each other and social life and children and friends and have a wonderful life. You've been listening to Jim Merkel. There's a crow flying, dark and ragged tree to tree. He's black as the highway that's leading me. Now he's diving down to pick up on something shiny. I feel like that black crow flying in a blue Took a ferry to the highway, then I drove to a pontoon plane. I took a plane to a taxi and a taxi We're going to take a short train. break now. Stay tuned. Living Hero. Conversations with living luminaries and mavericks. Welcome back to Living Hero. Conversations with living luminaries and mavericks. We are here each week to talk with those local, regional, national, and international artists, researchers, activists, authors, healers, wisdom figures, and heroic individuals of all kinds who are working for the greater good. I'm Jari Chevalier, and I want you to explore and celebrate with me what it means to be heroic in our times. We are drawing the connections between psyche and society, between our innermost experience and the large-scale geopolitical reality we all share. We are looking at what conscientious individuals and groups are doing to take a more holistic view and to usher in more wholesome ways of living and structuring societies. So get the big picture, draw connections, repair neural synapses with interviews, essays, music, spoken word, audio collages, panel discussions, listener participation. This is independently produced, listener-supported radio created in the public interest. And now we return to our conversation with author of Radical Simplicity, Jim Merkel. You know, how do you get involved in politics when a lot of us maybe don't want to? Mm-hmm. We'd rather just live our lives and be homesteaders and engage in our art and music and gardens and each other and social life and children and friends and have a wonderful life. We're afraid if we just do that only that, you know, the tanks will roll down, probably not our streets right away, but they are rolling down somebody's streets somewhere in the world right now, ours, you know. Our drones are flying in and killing them in many, several countries now. And our war machine is like equal to the whole world's war machine put together. It's just America's war machine. And it's to stop that, you have to understand a really complex system and try to figure out how you're going to intervene. Code Pink does it. They were just there, right? And standing up there. Yeah. You know, I was just listening to the radio uh, on the way over here to the studio, and there was a program on. One Billion Rising, which is this movement to increase the stature of women worldwide. And I know that this has been an issue you've gotten behind 
as well, uh, the education of women and protection of women uh, against rape and uh, slavery and, you know, we don't have to go down the list of all the abuses. And I'm just thinking, as you speak about the complexity, simplicity issues, that with 7 billion people on the planet and people, you know, even in a family, it's rare to get a group of people to agree there are these multiple conflicting goals and multiple value systems. And everyone needs some way to justify their existence in the way of making a living so that they don't die, just so that they can eat. And so I think sometimes things are made more complex than reality even supports, just so people can sort of manufacture more jobs, especially to manufacture more white-collar jobs, so creating these complex scientific experiments and this and that, just so that people can build more labs and justify these big salaries. Yeah, and and if, if they use that intelligence to make the world sustainable, we'd probably get there, like, so quick. I know, that's what breaks my heart. Yeah. You know, here we yeah. are on Valentine's <laughs> Day, and, and I can't help but say love to everyone, but also express how heartbreaking it can be to be aware, to be an activist and find these tremendous obstacles and the difficulty of, you know, even a program like mine doesn't get out to that many people because there are obstacles to these community stations or these more radical points of view getting out to large numbers of people. The Internet helps, but um, it's still fractional compared to what people are tuning into about, you know, what Michelle Obama was wearing on this particular day. And (laughs) You know what I mean? You're not going to get that here on this program. I'm not interested in what she was wearing. Right. Um, Mm. So the the complexity is uh, not not so much about um, weather patterns or rainforest systems, but to me, uh, what is unnecessarily complicated is along the lines of Confucius saying that life is really very simple, and people insist on making it complicated. Yeah. <laughs> It is really amazing how, you know, and it's not, it's, it is hard in today's society to steer clear of that. I, you know, I've been at this for like 25 years, just like really focusing my life to have my life in balance, to have my own life be feeling sustainable. And I struggle all the time just to keep even relaxed and not feel anxiety or feel I'm doing enough or not make myself too busy or, so I feel like. You know, when I was, I spent five months in India, and when I was there, you could just feel the pace of everything was so incredibly different. And then you come home, and you, within like an hour, you've, you're just like, you're looking around, and you're feeling like you're just staring at it all, you know, because you can't even believe what's happening in front of your eyes because you weren't in this energy field for like five months. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I experienced the same thing. I I also spent five months in India, the exact same amount of time. And when I came back and I actually walked through some kind of superstore, whether it was a supermarket or a department store, 
I simply felt like I landed from another planet. I couldn't believe (laughs) my eyes. It was such an alien and strange and disconcerting feeling because it's so divorced from the earth and from the realities Mm. of balance. You know, uh, wise people, sage people always seem to speak of simplicity and tend to live simply. I've noticed that over the years, that the wisest people just really pare things back. And I'm always so moved to see that photograph of uh, Mahatma Gandhi's possessions, you know, his two pair of sandals and his pair of eyeglasses. And you know what I'm saying? Do you remember? Have you right. seen that photograph? Oh, boy. Um, I went to his ashram when I was in India. Did you? Yeah, and I got to see the little hut where he led the the movement, you know, for India's independence. It was like 10 by 10, you know? It's incredible, but he did so incredible. much self-development to be able to right. let go of these things. And I do have compassion for people because the understanding is that things in the pursuit of um, status and a feeling of having arrived and all of that, Trying to garner that through external things and and safeties is an indicator that the inner life has not been thoroughly developed, that there's not a feeling of belonging in this universe that creates that safety net and that undergirding of the personality that can enable this letting go and deep simplicity and that's why all these topics are interrelated. That's what I'm trying to do on the show is to create this synthesis of what it takes to have a worldview of uh, greater wisdom and and being in touch with reality. That, that the inner and outer are always related and um, that the pursuit of reality is a life's work. Right, yeah. You know, this, the, I think the wisdom, you know, the, the sages say, you know, you can be happy in a prison if you become peaceful or in a horrible situation. And it's just harder to get your yourself peaceful inside, feeling lightness and energetic lightness. Fifteen years ago, I would argue that it is easy, you know, to be simple. It just seems so easy and so commonsensical that I was losing my compassion for people who would tell me it was hard, you know? Yeah. And so then, you know, I think I've come a circle now to see that in the ether of America, it's not easy. Like, the ether is everywhere. Like, I haven't had a TV since I was 18 years old. You know, I got rid of it at 18. I didn't want it anymore. And and I haven't gotten again, you know? And But still, it's, it's everywhere, like, because... 98% have it, and it's on like eight hours a day in the average house on, not necessarily watched. But it's just so pervasive that almost anyone you interact with is influenced by it. So even, you know, you're going to go out in the world, the newspaper you're going to read, the people you see, how they're acting is influenced by this thing. And then the culture is just to eat, you breathe it in America. It's hard to, like... When I go see Amish communities near us here, so I can go and see the Amish, and I go hang out there, and you see the young boys or girls come, and they're and they're in the yard, and the parents are so calm in a way. Kids, I haven't seen them crying yet. The kids, you know, mm. every time I was there, they're never crying, you know, demanding, and 
if they're just doing something completely different, you know, like a 12-year-old boy there is not, like, shunning his parents and trying to, you know, be cool with his buds and, and dissing his parents. They're loving each other, and they're together. You know, they're, they're able to have a culture in the middle of America, and I don't know how the heck they do it because it's so hard. Like, to have a family life in America is really hard right now. You know, that doesn't go into the American values and, and doesn't draw kind of so heavily from them that you can't almost have a family life. Yeah, it's very interesting that you bring up the Amish because, of course, they have a community that has a tradition. Uh, they have infrastructure and systems by which they can maintain a certain amount of uh, separatism in a way. that They, they can right, yeah. shield each other through the, uh, the existence of the community. And I think, you know, in, in our conversations we've talked about the longing for community among right. those of us who really want to live in a different fashion. I want to read this quotation from Henry David Thoreau. Our inventions are wont to be pretty toys, which distract our attention from serious things. They are but improved means to an unimproved end, an end which it was already but too easy to arrive at. Would you comment on this uh, very famous quotation? <laughs> yeah, well, I love Thoreau. He's just, oh, uh, man, I have, like, his whole book underlined, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Every time I read that quotation, it reminds me of that part in the New Testament that's often read at weddings, in fact, about coming of age, you know, putting away uh, the childish things. Right, because, well, Thoreau could see the silliness of what his neighbors were doing. And, you know, even in 1860s or 50s when he was writing, he would say, here comes my neighbor with a 60-acre farm on his back. And he could see the look on his face as he was kind of hunched over, bearing the weight of, like, doing way too much. When he said, all you need is a peck of land, and he was saying, well, you could live on a third of an acre if you're a vegetarian, right, <laughs> instead of being a meat-eater. And then he would, you know, kind of chide his... Uh, his meat-eater friends, and say, look, you stand behind the ox all day long as it pulls the plow through the earth, you know, and you say man needs meat to have strong bones. <laughs> the animal pulling the plow is eating grass, you know? Mm -hmm. And he would just have all these, like, hilarious little statements, you know, and that he would make about, like, overwork and doing it for the wrong reasons, in a sense, like, you know, having new clothes, but how many people put a, you know, a, a new person inside the old clothes. <laughs> the capacity for humans to be beautiful and to uplift themselves and to, you know, engage in a spiritual life and community life is so powerful and present. And, you know, when people touch into it, it often brings a lot of rewards, you know, when they begin to shift their focus. And it won't maybe happen overnight, but they slowly begin to shift their focus away from, say, like materialism and and start to have more time with kids. I was in uh, Canada on doing a CBC radio interview in Halifax, and a woman called up and said, I was a consumer-aholic. She said, like, some, I forget exactly what drew her away from consumerism, but she was just, like, glowing in her, like, how life is so different now, that she isn't, like, stuck in this thing of, like, when she's bored to go shopping. You know, I doubt a lot of our listeners here in 
you know, playing field and around Vermont have that level of the, the you know the issue or of a, as a daily thing. You know, a lot of people, you know, when I was in Vermont, were back to the landers and chose to live there in a real conscious way to like to have a more simple life, to have a family life for the kids to go out and breathe fresh air and to know what it is to garden. Like when I do public talks in New England, I'll ask, how many have a vegetable garden? And I'll ask people to raise their hands. I lived in East Corinth, just 20 miles south of Plainfield for several years on the old Waterman homestead. And, you know, 80% of the people would say they raise their hand, they have a vegetable garden, not even a flower garden. That's a vegetable garden. You know, if you're speaking to 100 people in East Corinth or in Montpelier or anywhere around. And so I think it's quite beautiful, the kind of shifts that are in, in place, you know, in, in Vermont, you know, people have, don't, don't so much go for the strip malls and until they're kept McDonald's out. I don't know if they still have, but you know, the only capital light that I know of in the, probably the world that doesn't have McDonald's. Yeah. You know, that's what I, that's why I'm here because there's still a certain <laughs> level of sanity here. I, I just want to focus in for a second and make my own comment, I guess, uh, on this last part of, of that quotation, unimproved end, uh, an end, which it was already, but too easy to arrive at in a sense. Um, it takes a certain amount of discipline. In other words, when he says it, it's easy to arrive at consumerism, I think that it's really true that it's easier to sort of just fall in line with uh, a system that's going to just keep on being about your ego and about um, getting more comfortable and self-promotion and so on, and that it takes a certain kind of discipline to go beyond that. But it's almost like breaking the sound barrier or getting above the clouds that a certain point people do, and I think it, it does have to do with spiritual practice, do get beyond that. And then things look completely different from there, and one cannot go back, and one does not have those weaknesses in the same way. No, I agree, and it's um, it, it does seem easier to just fall in, right? But the, the path is quite easy, but it's so unusual, and and our minds haven't been trained that way to be. Say, if, probably if you were born in a Buddhist nation, for example, like maybe when I walked in the Himalayas in Zanskar, and. You know, just engaging with the people there, you could feel this amazing presence, or I felt it, this is amazing presence and lightness, energetic lightness. Like when you watch the Dalai Lama, how he just spontaneously laughs, you know? Yeah. The hardest question, he'll just spontaneously laugh, and there's this lightness, this energetic lightness, like internally feeling light and airy. And I know when I touch it, it's just so wonderful and beautiful, like, to feel light inside and not heaviness. And, you know, you know when you see the, the pain and suffering of what's happening on the planet, you know, I spent years in a really dark place, like internally just feeling so devastated and raw, you know, and this one Shambhala warrior that Chogyam Trumpa, who was a Lama who fled Tibet and has books about his life story when he fled, and he set up in Vermont in Barnett, the uh, Shambhala Center there, but, you know, he, he described the feeling of being a warrior as being raw. You know, like, it's like your skin has is, is been peeled off you. You know, you've been tortured. And, you know, and, and, you know, when you feel the pain of, like, who's being tortured right now in, in, 
Guantanamo, deal with those young 17-, 18-year-old people who did nothing to us at all, and they've been sitting there for 10 years in a cell, kicked around, hooded, and beaten, and waterboarded. And you just think about how can you be, like, just go on with your daily life and know that's happened, and you want to check out, and that doesn't work. Just pretend it doesn't happen. Don't depress me. Don't tell me that. Wallowing in the pain of it doesn't help. You know, and then, but how do the saints like Thich Nhat Hanh or whatever, he knows the pain. You know, he was there when the U.S. killed three million of his people, but he doesn't hold us against Americans. I went to his seven-day retreat. He's not all day long unhappy, smiling <laughs> and beaming. And he knows that's the only way we're going to get there, I think. It, you know, it's like skillful means, I've heard the Buddha say, because, you know, you feel the rawness inside. You feel raw to the bone, but then you you realize, like, that's there. But there's also this beauty that's right here in front of you. There's a little child who's right there. There's your partner. She's right there. There's your little yurt here, and your God, you're dry and you're warm and, like, you know, you go downtown and your friends wave to you, you know, your neighbor, and and you strike up a conversation at the co-op, and they're wonderful people, and you're talking about things of substance. And and so, uh, wow, it's like, wow, I'm alive. Like, how simple is that? You know, I'm alive and I'm happy and beaming happiness and love, and I'm raw, too. You know, I'm not checked out from that, and I'll do what I can whenever I can to... to Stop drone attacks, you know. I'm holding in my hand, you know, the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Mother Earth and the uh, Charter for Compassion and the Earth Charter. There have been so many fantastic groups of people who have really come together as communities and and articulated in very concise ways what, what needs to happen and brought that before panels. And things are moving on that front. On the other hand, there are, you know, the Monsantos of the world and so on that are just plowing ahead with, with their agendas. So my question really is, what do you think it's going to take to make the alternative the mainstream and make the mainstream fade away into history? Right. Well, it's kind of happening, but, it, you know, uh, of course, I would want it to happen faster. But, you know, we're just heading straight for the wall at like 200 miles an hour, and we've barely begun to put the, the brakes on, and we're going to hit the wall no matter what we do. You know, and people are already feeling it. They're hurting. And then when you look around at who is responding, yeah, I just had my students at Unity College, I'm teaching there, read that Universal Rights of Mother Earth by... Uh, Evo Morales helped get passed, you know, and as a whole nation, Bolivia is. And then, you know, to see the Evo No More movement taking hold right now across Canada and, um, you know, indigenous people standing up for their rights and wanting sovereignty. And, you know, it's springing like wildfire. And then other indigenous people are joining them around the world in solidarity. And so, it, you know, these things are happening. And Unity College, where I teach, they, uh, the new president... The outgoing president was amazing, Mitch Thomashow, and he was really clear. Like, our mission as a university is to put out change agents into the world to, like, make the world a better place and address the most pressing issues humanity faces. And they got a new president who is just as strong. He is just saying this is a planetary emergency, climate change, and so he's focusing the whole campus on sustainability science, like, 
matter what you're learning there, you have to understand sustainability science, and that's what they want to be known as as a campus. Mm-hmm. Well, sounds fantastic. You know, when I was at Dartmouth College, two thousand five to two thousand seven. All of a sudden, every campus across the country was getting a sustainability coordinator, and they were amazing people because we'd get together and we'd have a thousand of us at a conference. And they're like a, every Ivy League college had them, every little college had them. And we're all talking like the same language like, how do we get the waste out of our dining? How do we get organic food in the dining hall? How do we get our buildings carbon neutral? How do we build zero energy buildings? And, you know, and we're. And we're doing it. We have to do more the, the skillful means of getting people to join and doing more, you know, to, to inspire people to want to get involved, to make an energetic feeling that people want to join this movement and become part of it.
that about wraps it up for today's Living Hero Show. So glad you were right here with us. Tune in each week, Saturday mornings from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern at 91.1 in Plainfield and 91.7 in Hardwick in North Central Vermont. And streaming live wherever you are at WGDR.org. Podcasts of our shows are available at livinghero.com, on iTunes, and around the web. Subscribe to our RSS feed. Join us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Leave comments on the podcast page at livinghero.com. This is WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick. Thanks for listening. Be well, and see you here next time.